Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Thank you. The book of Philippians, written by Paul uh, while he was in prison, is often called the Epistle of Joy. Throughout the book, Paul regularly returns to the theme of joy or rejoicing. And uh, when you realize that he wrote this while sitting in a Roman prison or a dungeon, you know, they didn't treat prisoners well back in those days. He was most likely underground, probably didn't see sunshine at all. Uh, had uh, in ancient times, as it is even in current days in most countries, prisoners weren't given any food. They had to rely on relatives or friends coming to give them food. But in the midst of the suffering that Paul was enduring because of his faith, being in prison simply for being a Christian, he writes this letter And throughout the letter, he he talks about joy and rejoicing. And he writes it so that the Philippians, the church, would have a reason to have joy. He writes it to you. God used him as God's servant to communicate to us a reason to have joy. I found out that when the pandemic hit uh, last year, it hit really hard. Most of us would remember the stories that came out of New York City. Because that was like, that was bam. Uh, almost out of, I mean, we heard it in China, overseas, all of a sudden, you know, New York is hit and their hospitals are filled to the point where there's no more room in the morgues. And so they actually bring in uh, 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 they're called reefers, they're refrigerated uh, semi-trucks, to load the dead bodies. Because so many people were dying, they didn't know how to treat this new uh, virus, this new sickness. And then they actually dug and filled mass graves in New York City because so many people were dying. And it was, it was a major catastrophe. And then, uh, of course, the city went into a lockdown and everyone was was it was one of the first lockdowns that eventually spread throughout the whole country and the whole world where people had to stay home but new york did it right off the bat because so many people were uh, getting sick and they didn't know how to control it but the subway workers were deemed essential employees even though no one was riding the subway And so the subway workers, the people that sit in the booths that take the money or check off the tickets, had to go to work every day. Have you ever been in a subway? Sometimes there are two, three, four, five, six. In Tokyo, there can be 10 stories underground. And they're sitting in their booths. Normally seeing tens to hundreds of thousands of people every day and interacting with those people. They, they were, like, I heard an interview. Like the, the, they enjoyed the interaction of all those people. But all of a sudden, they were sitting deep underground all alone 
while above the city was dying from a pandemic. They had loved ones who were in the hospital, and some of them died while they were sitting in those booths. Co-workers died while they were sitting in those booths, all alone for eight to 10 hours a day, day in and day out. And something kind of curious happened. All of a sudden, people, the workers, started bringing bottles of joy. This is true. No, they don't know who started it. But one of the, the workers, they weren't allowed to use their phone or internet while they were at work. It's against the rules. And it's just something to look at to give them a little, when I hold this up, say, joy. All right? All alone for hours and hours. And they could look at this and find, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could just bottle joy? Like I was in the store last night. And I, I said, yeah, it was last night. They actually did. They bottled joy. <laughs> but this is true. And it slowly spread to almost all of the workers in those booths had these bottles of joy just to give them something to look at that was bright and give them hope. Paul was sitting in a dungeon in the darkness, and he wrote, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests request for you with for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul, in that Roman dungeon, found his bottle of joy. And that was remembering and praying for those Christians, those saints, those believers in the church in Philippi. When he was in that dungeon, he didn't have one of these. He had the memory. He remembered the believers in Philippi, he remembered their, 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 and prayed for them, and that gave him joy in the midst of the dungeon darkness. And he's writing this to communicate this truth to us. Paul's joy was their continued fellowship in the gospel. It's an important, that's a, that's a really important word in, in the New Testament, fellowship. It doesn't just mean having a meal together or donuts or coffee, although it can include that. It means the partnership. It's a Greek word, koinonia. Partnership or participation. And so he remembered their participation. He remembered their partnership. He, 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 he brought to mind their faithful contribution. And then they, they actually contributed to Paul. So Paul was sitting there, and he was dependent on other people bringing him food and clothing. And guess what? The church in Philippi was one of the faithful ones that actually sent a gift to Paul. Uh, and they sent it with one of their members, Epaphroditus, who came and delivered this. And Timothy, as I told you last week, was with them at the time. And, and no doubt, while they were sitting in prison, they were talking about this. And, it, and that conversation uh, um, uh, motivated Paul to write this letter to communicate to them that their gift and their contribution, but also their con 
continued partnership in the gospel gave him joy, even though he was in prison. Accepting the gospel, when you come to the place where you confess Jesus as Lord, when you make the decision to be a Christ follower, that's not the finish line. All right? That's the starting line. That's the beginning of a lifelong journey of partnering in the gospel, being a, a partner, a contributor, and that's what brought Paul joy, and that's what brings us joy. And their, their behavior brought joy, <clears throat> and I want to ask you, are we doing that same thing? And, and, and who? To whom are you bringing joy? By contributing and participating. And if you're not contributing and you're not participating, what are you bringing? Is it? No. When you participate, when you contribute, you bring. What do you want to bring? Who are you bringing it to? Who are you bringing it to? You should know. Is our behavior a source of joy or is it a source of sorrow and regret? All right. And you have the choice. God's equipped you. And this, 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 this book actually kind of spells out in many ways how God's equipped us to be bringers of joy and how to participate and how to contribute. Paul goes on, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's one of the most famous verses. Everybody knows that one. We memorized that in Sunday school. It's kind of easy to memorize, that's why. <laughs> Paul's confidence and our confidence wasn't in their ability or capability or our capability to be faithful, but in Christ's ability. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Till when? Till the day of Jesus, to the very end. All right? So it's, it's an appropriate that it's a, a well-known verse, but let's, let's remember it in context, okay? Because the context is, it comes after Paul commends them for their faithfulness from the very first day. So his confidence for their future is based on the faithfulness of God, but it also comes after commending and, and acknowledging that they have been faithful from the beginning. So this is an important uh, balance. It emphasizes the importance of our faithfulness while at the same time basing our hope on God's ability, not our ability. Does that make sense? All right. So Paul wouldn't have been able to say that if they'd heard the gospel and maybe even said yes, but then forgot about Paul and never sent him anything or communicated or lived a life. Right? Have you ever known someone that made a commitment to Jesus Christ and then didn't live it out? You can't have confidence that they're, they're, they're in their future if they haven't demonstrated faithfulness in the present. 
Are you hearing me? All right? And so being confident that God will finish the work that he began doesn't remove our responsibility to being faithful for what we've been given. All right? It's the same lesson Jesus told in the parable, right? When the... uh, 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 the the landowner would entrust his stewards with talents or or a portion of wealth and tell them to invest it. And the ones who invested what they were given and, and brought a return were given a greater reward. But the one that hid what he had in the ground, even what he had was taken away. Right. So this is just a gospel, it's a kingdom truth. That you can have confidence in God's ability, but that doesn't relieve you from being responsible with what God has entrusted you. And if you're sitting here, God's entrusted you with something. In fact, if you have a phone, how many have a phone? She referred to it. Hold up your phone. This is direct access to God's word 24-7. All right, I looked up a scripture during worship. That's cool, isn't it? I used to have to carry around this big book called the Strong's Thesaurus. And it was called a thesaurus because it was like a dinosaur. <laughs> it was big and old. <laughs> and now I can do it with this little phone instantly so quickly. Are we faithful with what God has entrusted us? In the same way the Philippians partnered and participated with Paul, each and every one of us is called to partner and participate with Jesus Christ. And when we do that, like the Philippians, we can have confidence that God's going to finish the work. Paul then goes into a prayer. And in this prayer, he identifies uh, five things. He prays five different things for the uh, Philippians. Uh, Philippians 1, 7 through 11. It says, just as it's right for me to think of this of you all, because I, I have loved you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. In other words, because they both received the gospel, but also were participants. They supported him in, in the ministry and they continued to minister the gospel even while Paul was in prison. He's saying because of that, they have a share in the grace that God is pouring out, all right? That saving grace, the transforming grace. Remember, grace is not permission to get away with something that's power to be set free from anything that holds you down all right and so uh, they were participate they, they were able to partake of grace because they were participants and contributors with Paul in the gospel and he goes out and he says for God is my witness how greatly I long for you with all the affections of Jesus Christ and this I pray and he goes into five different prayer points that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Love. And the word abound in the Greek actually means superabound. 
to be excessive, to excel. God wants our love to just like spill out all over the place. And the prayer in scripture for you is that your love would abound, superabound, be not able to be contained. <clears throat> love is a primary character trait of being Christ-like. For God so the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is, God is love. How much should we love? Paul's prayer was that the Philippians would abound in love. My prayer is that you would abound in love. God's prayer in his word is that you would be so full of love and spill out all over the place. It would be the definition of your life. And then it goes on, in knowledge and all discernment. Or they can be translated in understanding and judgment. Oh, well, wait a minute here. Love and judgment? <clears throat> Abound in love with all judgment. Discernment and understanding and knowledge. Wait a minute. I thought it was supposed to be loving, not judging. Am I be loving? Or judging. You're to abound in love in all judgment and discernment and understanding and knowledge. In our, in our day, that's a contradiction because we have broken thinking. We don't understand love and we don't understand discernment and judgment. All right? And, and the Word of God wants to correct that. How many want to be corrected this morning? All right? <laughs> our love is not to be blind. It's not to be detached from knowledge, judgment, and discernment. Your love can be informed. And in fact, the, the word of God says that that is God's prayer for you, that your love would abound in knowledge and understanding and discernment. God so loved the world, do you think he knew how bad off the world was? Do you think he knew how hypocritical even his own people that had his word for generations and generations, how hypocritical they were, how, 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 how horrible, detestable behaviors the pagans lived. Did God know that? Hello? Did he still love them? Did he love them so much that he sent his son? He abounded in love. Not out of ignorance, but out of knowledge. He judged, wow, they really need my love. Knowing truth in the ability to judge what is right and wrong, sinful and destructive, or wholesome and healthy, should not diminish, does not diminish, doesn't have to diminish, better not diminish our love and affection, but rather inform it. Do you realize that when your love is informed, your love is more powerful? We're to love not to coddle people so that they, they feel comfortable in the pit of sin and, and deception and, 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 uh, and, 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 and foolish choices they're making. 
but we are to love them so that they can see a way out of that lifestyle. And we are to pattern our love in a way that they would they, they choose to follow. Jesus came. He was knowledgeable. He was able to judge right and wrong. He knew the utter sinfulness and, the, and, and how, 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 how broken the people that he encountered were. But his love attracted sinners, didn't it? He lived in a way, never sinning, that attracted those bound in sin to come to him for freedom. He demonstrated what informed love can do. Number two prayer was that you may approve the things that are excellent. Commentator Barnes, <clears throat> old guy, he's been dead for hundreds of years. I like old commentators that have been dead. They bring a different perspective, and they won't change their mind <laughs> and write a book. <laughs> I'll be sad I quoted from. Anyway, Barnes says, the idea here is, is that he wished them to have an intelligent apprehension of what was right and wrong, of what was good and evil. He would not have them love, that he would not have them love and approve all things indiscriminately. And so there's a whole bunch of people in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, saying we need to love these people indiscriminately. But the Bible is saying, no, you need to love with judgment and discernment. You need to know how to approve the things that excel. They should, be, uh, they should be esteemed according to their real value. If something is destructive, it's not valuable. It's destructive. It is remarkable here, Barnes says, how anxious the apostle was, not only that they should be Christians, but that they should be intelligent Christians. What an idea! <laughs> I'm sorry, don't you guys find that funny? <laughs> we are to be intelligent Christians. This scripture is a, is a prayer in God's word that our Christ-likeness would be intelligent, informed. Okay? And in fact, the, the, the call of Christ is not to love indiscriminately, but love with excellence and love those things that are excellent and that draws people into an excellence. Don't be dumb Christians. Be intelligent Christians. Be informed Christians. That takes work, folks. Third prayer is that you may be sincere. I like this one. It means judged by sunlight. That's literally what it means since the, in the Greek. Judged by sunlight, brought out into the light, tested as genuine. Refers to living in the light, not having aspects of your life hidden or concealed, secrets, mingled with worldliness and sin. But rather open to God and one another, living in the light. First John says it this way, God is light. That's why joy is yellow. <clears throat> no, 
Just kidding. And there's no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. Do you want to be a liar? No. But if you go on having concealed darkness in your life and not living in the light, you're actually lying to yourself. All right? God knows it, and probably the people around you know it. We can't go on doing that. We are not participating in the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. (gasps) This means that fellowship, genuine koinonia, that partnership, the contribution, the the working together, as well as the the, the light of living a life in unity with one another comes through getting our stuff out in the light. Listen, we all have stuff. Nobody here is perfect. Nobody here is without sin. But we can choose to bring that out into the light in appropriate ways so that we can be accountable to one another. And when we do that, it says that we can have true fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so when we bring stuff to the light, that light, sunlight is one of the most effective um, disinfectants there is. There's very, very few germs that can exist in sunlight. Uh, and, and, and it's just true. And it's so that's true in the light of God even more in a spiritual sense. Number four, that you may be without offense till the day of Christ. Oh, I like this one a lot too. My prayer is that you would be without offense. If Christians could live without offense, This means two things. Romans says it this way. Paul says it to the church in Rome this way. If it's possible, and that means sometimes it's not, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, the the only time when it's not possible is when other people won't live at peace with you. But as much as it's up to you, in other words, in everything that you do, think, say, You need to be peaceable. You need not to be offensive. Don't be offensive. Is that a hard commandment to understand? Actually, it is. Actually, last two days I was in a conference in Chicago about ministering in an urban setting. And at one point, I I really wanted to go up in front of this... uh, this, uh, this uh, set of guys, they were all great speakers. Uh, uh, the, the, the only pers- only white person that said anything from the stage was a guy who came up and did some announcements. They were, they were all people of color, uh, African-American, <clears throat> Asian, Puerto Rican, all kinds of different ethnicities. Uh, extremely well-informed, excellent speakers. And um, they were talking about how um, the church, especially in America, uh, unwittingly is offensive to people of color, uh, not understanding what they uh, experience having grown up. And one of the speakers says that his grandfather was a sharecropper. Um, and so that meant in Alabama, his grandfather, okay, who's still alive, was a sharecropper, which meant he 
he was it was really enslaved labor uh and uh and, and, and at starting at age four, he had to work in the fields while the owner of the fields, his kids went to school. Even though they ate the food that his fa grandfather harvested, his grandfather couldn't go to school and his, uh, his parents couldn't go to school because they had to work the fields so that the landowner's uh, kids could go to school and get a college education. I was like, wow. I hadn't thought of it that way. We can offend people unintentionally. And it's not just the racial thing. I offend people all the time. I told you this just a few weeks ago. You remember? I'll say something and someone will come back and say it really hurt their feelings. And I'm like, what are you talking about? because I say it in a way that they receive hurtful. How we say things can offend people, but God calls us to live unoffensive. And so that means I need to find ways I offend people and stop behaving that way. And, I, I'm, and I, I'm still finding ways. <laughs> So this primary means we live at peace. We live in a way that doesn't offend others, that nothing we do would be harmful or wrongful toward anyone else. Okay, we get that. We're not to take advantage of people. We're not to mistreat people. But this also means uh, <clears throat> that we live in a way, okay, we, that we don't offend people. Um, I said that. It also means that we do not become offended. Right? And I think it means that equally. We don't offend, but we also don't become offended. You can't live at peace with someone if you're carrying a grudge, if you're upset with them. If you're offended by what they said or did, you can't be at peace with them. Well, what they said was bad. Yeah. What they said was hurtful. Mm -hmm. What they said was wrong. Sure. But you don't have to be offended by that. What they did to Jesus was hurtful. Yeah, they beat him and whipped him and nailed him to a cross. It was wrong. Yep. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. You want to be a Christian? When people treat you wrongfully, don't take up offense. Nothing anyone can do can offend you if you don't pick up the offense. Do you believe that? Nothing anybody can do can make you angry if you don't choose to be angry. Now, let me clarify. There's an emotional response that you can have that is, in, to some degree, uh, less controllable. It's not uncontrollable. But you can have the emotional response, but then choose, I'm not going to pick up that offense. I'm not going to get angry at that. I'm going to choose to forgive. And it's at that moment that you either demonstrate Christ-likeness 
or the opposite of Christ-likeness? Worldliness. I was trying to think of a word with a C. Carnalness. Carnality. Live inoffensive and unoffended. And listen, if you get to the place, actually, if you just get to the place where you're not offended by anyone ever, you're, like, you're going you're gonna to experience a level of peace that you never dreamed of possible. All right? Remember Walt Berger? How many remember Walt Berger? He is a hero. He's my hero. <clears throat> Served his whole life as a missionary. Uh, <clears throat> one time he was here, this was years ago, and I said, he said something, <clears throat> something, the offense came up. I said, Walt, you can't offend me. He says, well, of course not. That's because you're a Christian. <laughs> In his Walt Berger way. <laughs> and I thought, that's right, man. He's got it. If you're a Christ follower, you can't be offended. Jesus wasn't offended when they beat him, falsely accused him, killed him. We get offended when someone says something in a way that we don't like. <sighs> Live inoffensive, so take responsibility of behaviors that you have to offend others, but also unoffended. That you may be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, <clears throat> to the glory and praise of God. So his prayer was that we'd be filled with fruitfulness, and not just the avoidance of unrighteousness, but that we'd be filled with righteousness. Uh, Jesus said it this way in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So fruitfulness does two things. It glorifies the Father when we're being righteous, when we're producing fruits of righteousness but also demonstrates that we're really Jesus' disciples. It's not just the avoidance of unrighteousness, it's actually producing righteous acts, righteous deeds, righteous actions, righteous words, righteous thoughts, thoughts, deeds, actions that display the character, the love, the peace, the joy, the gentleness, all the things the kids sing about in life. All right? That's the fruit we're to produce. And when we do that, Father's glorified and it shows that we're actually his disciples. And then Paul kind of wraps up this uh, next this section with a, a long statement, <clears throat> but it all has to do with one thing. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me and those things were his arrest, his, his imprisonment, <clears throat> his trials, He's now awaiting an appeal in Rome. He could be put to death at any moment. All of this stuff turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that maybe it maybe has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, he's like, guys, this has actually worked out super good. Because now everybody in the palace, everybody, uh, you know, serving Caesar, the whole, all of them know that I'm here because I'm a Christian. Why? Because he was telling them, all right? He says, this is actually good, that my chains are in Christ. And, and most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
It actually emboldened the other Christians to preach the gospel when they saw that Paul was suffering well. It kind of opened up the door for people to take risks. Some, indeed, he goes on and preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add to my affliction uh, in my chains. But the later out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What's the conclusion? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, or I have. Okay? I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. It makes him happy. His chains are in Christ. Even though his imprisonment was wrong, he saw the value of it because it furthered the gospel. He valued the furtherance of the gospel more than his personal freedoms. He would rather sacrifice his personal liberties so that he would have the opportunity to demonstrate the suffering of Christ so that others would know that Jesus died for them. He was willing to endure wrong treatment, injustice, and suffering. And he actually emboldened other people to preach as well. Uh, All the way through the New Testament, as well as throughout history, Opposition has always resulted in the furtherance of the gospel and the growth of the church, right? And so it's right to defend our personal liberties. Don't get me wrong. You know, when we go to the ballot box, when we choose uh, who we're going to support, that's one of the things that should define uh, how we vote, how we, how we influence our, our communities. We work to ensure freedom and to do whatever we can to influence our government and, and, and the structures in our society to main freedom. But we can't confuse the primary goal that we're called to, and that is the communication of the gospel. All right? And that realize, wow, sometimes opposition actually leads to the furtherance of something more important than our freedom, which is the, the message of Jesus Christ's death burial and resurrection. Apparently, some people had been uh, preaching the gospel in a way that tried to bring accusation against Paul and uh, promoting probably their own ministry at the expense of of Paul, that he he did something wrong, that's why he's in prison. We don't understand what that actually refers to, but we do see Paul's response. Paul doesn't get upset. Paul doesn't get offended. Right? He actually finds joy in that circumstance because he says in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice and I will rejoice. So even when people were slandering his name while he was in prison for the sake of Christ, Paul found joy because the gospel was being preached. It demonstrated what he had just prayed for the Philippians to have. And so I just ask you, what are you doing uh, 
uh, in what ways are you and I living like Paul that uh, uh, we rejoice in being taken advantage of? <clears throat> His chains were in Christ. What chains are there in our lives that are in Christ? What, what limitations or restrictions that are actually Christ's will for us so that we can further the gospel? Evaluate your life that way and you'll start to see things differently. And where are you finding your joy? Is it in world, worldly possessions or positions? Is it in your pursuit of happiness? Or is it in your participation with the gospel like the Philippians had? I challenge you to find your joy in the gospel. I'm thankful we live in a country where we can pursue happiness. But I'm called to live a life of pursuing righteousness and pursuing the kingdom of God and pursuing the gospel being proclaimed so that people's souls would be saved. That's our highest calling. And don't sacrifice that for something intangible and fleeting as happiness that isn't real joy.